Hello and welcome to another episode of Showroom Chats. Showroom Chats is presented and produced by myself, Andy Roberts, and brought to you by the University of Chichester Theatre Department and the Showroom Theatre Chichester. In this week's episode of Showroom Chats, I sat down with Glasgow-based theatre maker and artist Gillian Lees. Gillian has worked with many companies across her career, but I mainly know her through her work with Prototype Theatre, which she told me she spends around 50% of her time and focus on. The other 50% is with her collaborator, Adam York Gregory. Now, we don't cover too much of her practice with Adam in this conversation, but I have left a link in the description box to this episode to their website if you should wish to check out more. However, to give this conversation a little clarity, I wanted to keep the focus mainly on her work with Prototype Theatre. Now, Prototype are made up of Gillian Lees, Rachel Bainton, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and Andrew Westerside. They create original performance work that is diverse in scale, subject and medium. Uh, recently, this has included performances and projects such as A Machine They're Secretly Building, a show about the world of surveillance, a two-week-long theatrical experience using pervasive technologies, Fortnite, and a multimedia concert performance featuring a live laptop orchestra and animation, The Good, The God and The Guillotine, plus many, many more. Now, I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Gillian. Her passion and enthusiasm for theatre and performance and her own practice is evident from the moment you start talking with her, and I think that comes across in our conversation. Be sure to stick around for her five points of making, creating and existing in the arts world at the end of our chat, as I think they're really key to creating a level mindset for anyone entering the arts as a career. Right, now that was a lot of rambling, so let's just crack straight on with my conversation with Gillian Lees. Uh, well, welcome. It's really lovely to have you taking the time out of your day to come chat with me and sort of chat and impart your wisdom upon the students. Um, so I think a really good question to start with is just the idea of I'm, I mainly know you for your work with Prototype, but I know that you've yeah. mentioned that you work with um, Adam York Gregory as well doing. I did yeah. take a look at your website, which has a lot of like kind of video projects and lockdown work that you've been doing together. But I think yeah. I'll probably a majority of my questions will focus towards the links that you sent us and the work that you do with Prototype. Sure. So I was just wondering when, um, when did you first start working with Prototype? The, that's kind of a chronological evolution uh, right. to the history of Prototype. It's, it's had three sort of fluid transitions or incarnations. Um, so the company originated in, in New York in the late 90s under the direction of our founding artistic director, Peter Petralia, and it remained there until um, the early noughties. And then it was in around 2006 or seven, actually, um, following a residency which Peter and I shared at the Centre for Contemporary Art in Glasgow. Um, that Prototype kind of established itself in the UK as a US-UK collaboration between Peter and myself, Wes and Rachel. Um, and then in 2012, following uh, Peter's return to the States, we fully established ourselves uh, in the UK with a core of three UK co-artistic directors who actively sought collaborations with other artists from other disciplines. So I guess each of those phases could be considered like an evolution more than a stage or a, yeah. or a break, like fluid transitions into something else, into new ways of making and building on the last and developing new ways of collaborating and always with a new form of work being produced. I guess that's kind of the arc. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting because I also run a company with two other artistic yeah. directors. How do you, 
I suppose this might be jumping the gun, but we might as well see as we've come across it. How do you organize kind of what project you're taking on next? Like with, with Bootworks, myself, Rob and James, we will often uh, lead on a project. So I might have a burning desire to explore something or do something and they will back up that idea. And then eventually it will become a thing that we share. But there is normally always one person who leads it just because we all have full-time jobs in other places so it's always best to have each yeah. each person leading on a project otherwise it all sorts to crumble is that a kind of similar sort of process for you guys oh, or that's really tricky yeah we yeah it's hmm. so it's, it's going to lead on to another question that you asked around approach to work yeah. so we can maybe move into that yeah. after because it kind of sits in parallel but um as you just mentioned in relation to you three we have um got different jobs um, and I think that's really important to reinstate to students that there's no shame in having other jobs whilst trying to be an artist. You need to fucking eat, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, in terms of how that impacts on, on the work and who takes what role, we've kind of, um, sh- we've settled in different ways of being. So actually, because I work freelance, Uh, for other companies as a performer I have much more sort of dexterity and availability to work in an ad hoc uh, more responsive um, way to prototype as a company Wes and Rachel both full-time academics so we generally make in the in-between times but we are actually continuing those conversations across the board all of the time. And I act more as, I guess, a bit of um, an administrator in ways. And I, I do work as our producer. So there's always me as a kind of through line in terms of keeping the company going because we're project to project, not MPO. Yeah, same here. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so on a sort of really practical level, that's how we function. But um, I think sort of... Moving into another question to answer that first question. Yeah, yeah. We don't have a set formula to make, and we've got no like A, then B, then C, which is actually probably really unhelpful for your students because wouldn't it be nice if someone went, Oh, you just do that, then that, and then you get yeah. that? But that's that's not the case. Um, so instead we always arrive with a shared idea because the conversation is continuing even yeah. when we're not in the same place together. Um, so we always Instead, we, we do arrive with um, what we want to make the work about, but our approach is different every time. And I think that's the smartest way for us to ensure that we're making in the way that best befits the subject matter or best befits the form that we're interested in pushing. That's how the work evolves. That's how the company evolves. So it has to shift. Um, and in each of those sort of notional three iterations of the company, that's afforded us the ability to, to develop um, and accrue a range of methodologies over like 13 or 14 years that we can return to. So like yeah. sort of like a toolbox we can rummage around in to find what fits best. It's just a case at the start of each of them of opening it and seeing what gets pulled out first and see if that works and if it doesn't like head back to the box. But in terms of the actual making you part, the way that we tend to do it is just collect the detritus from one process and just kick it on into the next one and then the next one. So, so during the making of um, part one of this sort of notional trilogy, uh, a machine they're secretly building, we amassed an incredible amount of material uh, and interest in issues sort of 
pertaining to contemporary political discourse, but we kept returning to money, like follow the money and uh, in doing so, who's in control and who's holding all the cards. And whilst each of those things is incredibly salient, like that wasn't the show we were making. So we knew there would be a money show and we just kept kicking everything into this file called the money show. And then when it came to making the next show, we already knew what it was because we'd had those sort of communal conversations and like quite thorough discourse around it. Um, and so then we made the money show, which was the audit, which is about global finance and how neoliberal politics um, kind of led us down the route of the 2008 crash, for example. Um, and during that process, we kept returning to the abuse of language and um, we were sort of ruminating a lot over that Wittgenstein quote, um, the limits of the the limits of my language um, mean the limits of my world. That's maybe not an exact quote, um, but just thoughts on how thoughts on how control can be exercised through sort of limiting or, or delimiting vocabulary. And so that made sense that the natural progression for the third and final part, which is what we're working on just now, was a work that would tend towards truth and language and the hierarchies of control that exist as part of our acquisition of terms. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's where we were back in October when we are last able to yeah. be in a room together. I've gone a bit off straight from your first question, but effectively, <laughs> effectively, we have those conversations pretty much week to week about what our general interests are. And so we're sort of creating a cohesive folder of shit that we're interested in. And then it will always get dragged back out at every start of every process. And it's just whichever one kind of sort of sits, uh, sits best, I guess, is what we move forward with. Um, no, that's really interesting though, because I think <clears throat> it's, it's an idea of wondering if, is this the first time you've done the whole like say you've got a trilogy of shows that you're working on which has started with a, a um, machine they're secretly building is this yeah. the first time with working with the company that one show is so directly led into another in the in the in the sense that the ideas and the conversations you're generating whilst making one show is pushing into another one only because i speak to some companies and some projects are completely standalone so they actually when they're working on one show that all the ideas exist within that one show and none of them lead into any other avenues of another show. It's not until they start, finish that project that they start thinking about the next one. Whereas what you're talking about there sounds like a, a really interesting sort of way of going, or is that how you knew it was a trilogy? Because there was just so much to cover that each process yeah, I, led to another. Yeah, I think maybe the latter. So, uh, yeah, I think maybe the latter. We, around sort of, 2012 when um, Peter found himself having re to return to the States on a permanent basis that was kind of the evolution between uh, sort of iteration two and three of the company um, and I think Rachel excuse me Rachel West and myself found ourselves in a situation where like this is quite um like a real shift for the company but it's actually like quite um a freeing opportunity for us to sort of uh, bed down and um, collect our thoughts and work out what's really important to us as three individuals before moving forward again. I think it took quite a long time to, to process that. So um, we had some very frank conversations around what motivates us as individual artists with our own practices um, and what we were hoping to make together that we couldn't make by ourselves. Um, 
we wanted to make work that none of us would make or be inclined to make on our own, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so I guess born out of that was an agreement that we were really interested in making work that felt like it belonged as part of um, a contemporary political discussion. That's where our Venn diagram was sort of most concentrated. We wanted to, we needed to make a piece of theatre in response to some of the fucking mess that, that we <laughs> yeah. saw around us. And it was something that as a company we hadn't explicitly investigated uh, before because in that sort of US UK collaboration the dynamic was very different the company existed in America before we'd even heard of it and it had this extreme body of beautiful really aesthetically driven kind of ethereal um, performance work and and that legacy came with it to the UK and and established itself but then developed certainly in a really uh, in a direction that was really about um, developing new ways of incorporating digital technologies into performance. So you know it was what it was, and then it was this heightened version of that beautiful aesthetic work using digital technologies. And so where were we at now that we had that legacy and that legacy? Well, actually, what's really fucking important to us was the thing we needed to work out as a three. Um, and so, yeah, we were angry and we were frustrated. It, it turned out about a fucking lot of things. Um, <laughs> and I guess at the root of it, as storytellers, we were interested in the narrative, the narratives that go along with, with um, what we read in the media, the sort of hype. And we were really fascinated by Edward Snowden, uh, as well as broader ideas about government surveillance and digital rights and big data. Um, because those things were kind of a floating around, but nobody was really prodding. It's like, well, I just tick the T's and C's and get the hell on with it, you know, but nobody was going, yeah, but what are you literally agreeing to? Um, so it was an opportunity to express our frustration somehow and to communicate a sense of how powerless we, the three of us felt when we were confronted by that sort of faceless, uh, obscurantist machine like the NSA and GCHQ. So. Um, I think it was also a real shift mentally for us in trying to work out what theatre can actually do because it's great to, to be the people that have made that beautiful, visually stunning piece of work. Like that, that's no mean feat, that's brilliant. But, but what can theatre do that film cannot do and books cannot do, like really do as part of that political landscape? And I was... We have a sliding scale of understanding of the world as a company. So you've got Wes, Wes is really switched on and he reads everything. He is an academic through and through. And, and he does that because he likes it. And then you've got Rachel who is really interested. She's really interested and she will pick up and put down things, you know. She's got her finger on the pulse, but she's not obsessive like Wes. And then there's me. And I'm like, what's happening? What's on Twitter? Oh, I've not been on Instagram before. You know, a, a Luddite is probably what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> um, but Wes had told me about DA notices, which are defence advisory notices, which are governmental requests to news editors uh, not to publish certain materials in the interest of national security. Right. And during the unfolding of the Snowden revelations, a series of DEA notices were issued to UK broadcasters and print publications requesting that nothing was printed about the NSA's 
prison program, which basically indirectly kind of pointed the finger at another a number of nations all spying on one another to give one another information because we don't spy on our people, but Canada do, and then they tell us what's happening. So <laughs> I was like, well, I don't think they can issue DA notices to theater companies, right? So it seems to make sense to me then that maybe we should just take advantage of that and use our platform to communicate what the mainstream media literally are not allowed to. Uh, and so that became a machine they're secretly building. It was yeah, a form yeah. born out of like personal frustrations um, at how insidious surveillance culture well, is, still is, now more than ever probably. So yeah, and, and that sticks in my head um, in terms of that shift for the company because it had, as I say, an explicit political agenda. And we took everything that we'd learned over the past 10 years about crafting delicate, rhythmical, beautiful work, and then just aligned that aesthetic with a political statement that we actually felt really fucking angry about and felt that it needed to be heard. So, um, And also was hugely influenced by someone we'd worked with sort of peripherally but now like full fully invested in having a visual artist work with the company and that was Adam York Gregory so yeah when did you um when did you make uh, a machine we're secretly building again because I remember that being in my mind when I saw it going learning quite a lot of it it was a bit of a information overload that show but in a really good way um and I remember walking away from it with kind of like little bits and pieces and then it's only within the past 12 months that I feel like it's become a hot button topic and I was in my mind I was always a bit like yeah prototype way ahead of the game in that moment (laughs) (laughs) but then but then I found myself like in any conversation I'd get into like scrambling scrambling through my memory for a kind of like I've got some top facts, but let me just think yeah, about the show I saw. <laughs> um, I, I think it was 2015, actually. Um, wow, okay. In the, in, the, in the intervening years of that shift from 2012, uh, and then the three of us sort of um, consolidating the company um, in the UK, uh, we were undertaking, or mainly I was undertaking, this really large-scale project called Fortnite, which involved 200 people at a time and being in situ for two months in a city. And, you know, it was like really a full-time project. And we, I did that six times uh, from like 2011 till 2015. So um, we were quite occupied by that in the interim between Peter leaving and us deciding to make something new, as it were, not an inherited piece of work. Um, so 2015, I think, because it was 2017 that we took it to Edinburgh um, as part of the British Council showcase. God, that seems a long time. I, f- I feel like that might be, was it then or 2018? 2017 is what I had in my head. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. if it was 2015, right. I was like, well, then you were way, way ahead of no. the game. <laughs> no, no, we were not that far. I mean, we were in terms of the making and the rooting through all the fucking nightmare really dull language that is um it's somebody's job to make up to make it sound boring so no one challenges it um but yeah uh that's when we started making it and then i think we premiered it probably in 2016 i should probably have checked that out eh? (laughs) (laughs) and that that's talking about the written word which i when i think about your work and kind of looking at the you know, the rehearsal videos you sent us and students to kind of look over and check out. I always feel like your work has 
such poetry to it, but at the same time, it's quite matter of fact and sort of, in, especially in its storytelling. But there was a really lovely poetry to the kind of the language that you use in sort of telling these stories and putting across this information. Do you, does that come out of a rehearsal process or is that thought up between the three of you before you even begin that sort of R&D process? I suppose what our students are looking at is the idea of going, do we fucking write the thing before we get into the rehearsal studio and then mess around with the material that we have? Or is the material born out of us messing around in the studio? Which way, is there a, is there any way that you kind of approach it? Or yet again, it changes per project. I guess it is kind of a set way, but I don't know that it's either of those. <laughs> okay. Um, so I remember as a student really distinctly being told, get on your feet. It doesn't matter if you've got no ideas, get on your feet. And I always find that really obstructive. And it wasn't until I started working actually predominantly with Wes and Rachel in this iteration of the company. I was like, don't fucking have to get on my feet. Do you know what's great? Sitting down and talking, talking, talking which is the premise, I mean, this kitchen table is the premise of mine and Adam's entire practice. (laughs) Talking is what gets us somewhere because we are three entirely different humans with totally different interests. So just getting on your feet whilst you can then translate everything that you hold as a person into something physical, well, that's two stages of removal, do you know? Whereas if you just sit and talk, at least you can really easily locate those those, that Venn diagram of where the three of you actually have something in common or where two of you might and the other one doesn't. And those sort of peripheral little twos or like individual thoughts are, are the sort of the meat on the bones of the spine that's the thing you all agree on, if that makes sense. So we don't have a formula, like I said, ABC, but we go into that toolkit. And generally that toolkit, sitting on the top of the toolkit is remember to interview Gillian and Rachel. Um, so generally speaking, what happens at the start of a process or certainly for these last three works has been Wes interviewing Rachel and I in, in a myriad of different ways. Um, so with a machine, he sat me down in front of a camera and just said, so um, what makes you angry? I was like, uh, people, people not saying thank you, uh, like really glib kind of top of the head things. And then he, as West does, just allowed me some time and space. I sat there for about 15 minutes and then just this vitriolic litany <laughs> just came spewing out of me that I hadn't even it was very cathartic but things that I hadn't even really um I guess weren't at the forefront of my mind as things that frustrated me at the time though I remember it was the week that um the news had broken about tampon tax and I was fucking raging <laughs> which seems silly now actually well, now that it's been resolved in Scotland anyway. Um, but yeah, just that, but that spurred me to be, and another thing. And then Rachel joined in. We were going to be being interviewed separately, but Rachel was like, I kind of could see it rising in her. And so um, we have this recording of this sort of hour and a half long rage from the two of us. Oh, yeah. And when this happens, that, yeah. And the fact that we feel like the government are supposed to be being transparent and they're not. And it just, it was snowballing. And then the next day we're just presented with this text, which is virtually verbatim, but has been crafted uh, by Wes. 
And that became a lot of those solo moments where I'm speaking straight to the camera, those sort of cathartic, like, I don't fucking know what's happening, but I'm scared, you know, those real, what I like to think of as being quite human moments. And then with the audit, those conversations happened again, but <laughs> fuck, the interview was excruciating. It was like an exam. Wes had written out in advance of that day's um, rehearsal a list of um, terminologies, and he asked us to tell us what they meant. I, <laughs> but they all relate. They were all pertaining to um, basically global global finance and I know nothing about global finance I barely know about savings accounts do you know what I mean I barely know how to do my own tax in fact I think that's a line from a machine um yeah so like literally having to answer these questions on what um I mean I can't even think of any of the terms now but like all stuff from the city literally from the bank of England and asking us to explain what they were and what was kind of wonderful about it was at the end of it, both Rachel and I, who had been interviewed separately, were just exhausted and felt really deflated because one, it told us how much we had to learn about, about the financial structure that we live within, but also it just felt really stupid because I'd heard of all of these terms, but I just never bothered myself to work out what they were. So there was that real awareness of... Yes, the, a lot of the information you think you want to know is being hidden from you or isn't transparent, but also are you doing the work to find it out yourself? No, you just want it on a plate. So that was hard to reconcile. So yeah, I think the answer is we have conversations. Generally, there's an interview of some kind right. and then that, that verbatim text in some way finds itself into the work or into back and forth between Rachel and I. But Wes is, oh, sorry, I was going to say wordsmith, that makes him sound like such a wanker, I take that back. <laughs> he works with language in a beautiful and poetic way. So something that I might have said in a very aggressive, Scottish, sweary manner will come out as something like a seven-minute monologue at the start of um, the audit. Uh, so yeah, and also something to throw into that, I guess, is that he's always trying to actively challenge us as performers. I've got a terrible memory. He's always trying to encourage me to do things which require a lot of retention, which is great as a performer because it's pushing my boundaries. But but also he knows I hate spoken word. And so <laughs> mm. being handed a seven minute monologue of spoken words um, text was like super challenging. And I can still remember every word of it because <laughs> he made me. So, yeah. And is that genuinely his kind of position in the in the space, a sort of provocateur, a, a challenging of of your um, <laughs> strengths and weaknesses in that moment to generate material? Or yet again, sometimes, sometimes not. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. You asked um, you asked a question. What was the question um, about happy accidents in rehearsals? Yes, we can move. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And actually, this kind of ties in because I don't think we do um, have accidental uh like moments where we're like shit yeah that thing I think what we have is orchestrated serendipity on on a part of Wes so generally speaking he's got such a great sense of mine and Rachel's skill sets and strengths as performers he like he knows our sense of humor he knows 
he knows how to make one of us prompt a specific response in the other one to make us laugh or um or he's playing with that knowledge and those dynamics to bring something specific into the into the space so generally that seems like something that's surprising to us at the time but which he had fully anticipated so he's he's like an agent of chaos <laughs> controlled chaos you're in the sand pit that he's created and you're going wild for it and he knew that would happen all the time does that make sense yeah, um, absolutely and I guess that's what comes out of having a shared sensibility with two other people that's quite unspoken it comes from from pushing the boundaries of how and what we make um and it, it's born out of working together with for like 14 years I guess but um yeah I think that's probably the best way to answer that yeah maybe. no that's great I, I always think about there's there's a particular module that our students have that I always think leads to can lead to some absolutely incredible work and sometimes can be quite challenging and it's they have to create an hour-long production across six weeks or seven weeks and they're given a boatload of studio time a minimal budget to kind of you know dress it set and do what they need to do but I always look at the idea of going you you always you want to work with people who a you you might be able to learn to understand and know how that you work as a collective but also those people that are going to challenge you you quite often get groups of people who just get together who are just mates and what happens is because they're mates they're not willing to challenge each other or they're not because they're just best buddies and it leads to work that actually all of them as individuals are really smart maybe performers but because they're just together because they're friends it doesn't quite lead to um it doesn't necessarily produce bad work but it doesn't produce work that is kind of definitely and I think like from what you're saying and from companies I've talked to I think that Mm -hmm. idea of of really understanding and knowing the people that you work with is so crucial especially their strengths and their weaknesses but also the ability to go I'm gonna challenge you on that Mm -hmm. and I'm gonna push you on that and do you think that's absolutely crucial to a kind of the workspace Oh, for us, it has been. And I think what's really useful is that Wes, Rachel and I didn't, we didn't locate one another. Um, We were brought together because Peter had an interest or he had a residency in Glasgow and was looking for collaborators and had just moved from the US to the UK. And he and Wes were both doing their PhD at Lancaster at the same time, which is how he met Wes. Wes and Rachel are partners. Rachel's a graduate from Dartington and a performer. So, you know, we were brought together surreptitiously. Um, We didn't locate each other. So there was none of that premise of, um, oh, we're going to be friends or you're a really great guy or, you know, let's make work together. It was like, oh, right. Like sniffing around each other a bit. Like, okay, so what are the credentials here? Okay, you're doing a PhD. Well, I've been working full time as a performer since before you were born so how does that work (laughs) you know like really rigorously checking one another out and I think that was really useful because it means we started we grounded our working relationship in work and and then in friendship so we have some pretty you know we know we've each got tells if you want like you know when somebody's reaching their fucking max before they're going to go off on one and maybe you want them to go off on one um but at least you know what buttons you're pushing or you're actually you realize a oh, shit I've really pushed that person to the edge on that thing so I need to draw back like 
it, it could be an abuse of power if you were a bad person because, because you know how to press the buttons and pull the strings of, of the other two people. But actually, generally speaking, it means you can just have frank conversations. I think there's something interesting in that, um, though, Andy, that you mentioned about, like, in that sort of university context, that forefronting of wanting to be with your friends, obviously, um, <laughs> and, and, and wanting to get good grades, because you're institutionalised and you've done primary, well, I don't know how it works in different parts of England, I think it's different, but in Scotland, primary, nursery school, primary school, high school, possibly college and or university. So the trajectory is, you know, you're there to absorb, regurgitate, or you're there to absorb, learn and have an output. And I think it's too easy to, to sort of focus on the, the output uh, with the, the academic structure around it instead of the output for the development of you as an artist. It's hard sometimes to seem like really separate things. Why would you want to spend the next six weeks with someone who really pushes your buttons? In that moment, you're thinking, I want a really good grade um, and I want my life to be quite nice and easy for six weeks so it does make sense. Um, and also, I mean, when I'm working with students, often sometimes I have it sort of chucked at me well I wouldn't choose to work with someone outside of uni that I didn't like well sometimes you haven't got much choice not that I don't want requested Rachel but I just mean sometimes you find yourself in collaborations where actually it's it is difficult and you need to have already garnered the skill of dealing with that and who you are in that situation because you can't guess who you're going to end up with or what their traits will be so the more you know about you as a maker the better. So do it in uni where it's safe. And I know you want a great grade, but actually probably get a great grade from just from persevering through something that's really fucking hard and showing your personal growth during it. If that yeah, yeah that makes sense. Lecture over. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's great. I think it's really it's just really important for for students to sort of understand that process. I think like also coming back to your idea um, of how important it is to chat and have conversations. I've mentioned this in the previous podcasts I've done, but the idea of going, you know, um, as you said, when you're taught at university, you're taught so much at all, you know, mostly sometimes you're taught that it's really important to get shit up on its feet because you've only got a studio for a certain amount of time and you've got to get stuff up on its feet, you've got to go. And actually, you know, so much work is generated by just creating a space and an atmosphere in which you can just have those conversations, uh, maybe Absolutely. set a camera up recording that conversation and, and just smashing out an idea until you can't deconstruct or pull that idea apart any further. Um, yeah. And I, I really want, I'm hoping this podcast is, is drumming into students the idea of going, that's a really healthy process. Don't feel mm-hmm. like you need to, to get up on your feet and, <laughs> and yeah. start kind of. And I do appreciate, and I appreciate why um, institutions encourage that, because because the things that you take for granted at uni are free space, free equipment, um, access to people who just have time for you, for fuck's sake, you know, take advantage of that, because because lecturers like you who are practitioners are going oh guys you've no idea how fucking difficult it might be when you can't just come to me at these certain times like a lot of times I won't be available to you anymore like so yeah I can appreciate why why we as lecturers have to encourage that but also yes as makers it's like you know sometimes there's nothing better 
than eating food with your hands and still trying to converse with somebody else about, you know, how much a pint of milk costs and why that's outrageous. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So moving on to my next question, it's about yeah. kind of, and I think this can apply to you as, a, and as an individual artist, and then maybe to a prototype as a company, and then maybe to your company that you run with, Adam. Um, the idea of what work or influences or has influenced you throughout your time as an artist so are there theater companies that you look at and go it's a huge question it's a huge question and I I know a lot of people often say it's not it's not other theater companies it might be movie directors or it might be a band but is there keeping it sort of focused in the theater realm are there pieces of work you've seen that you've gone oh my god that's shit hot that has changed the way what I'm also finding quite funny about this showroom chats thing that I'm doing is that nearly every company so far has mentioned Force Entertainment and I'm not uh, gonna no uh, I'm not gonna (laughs) no perfect no and only but uh, it makes me laugh because it was exactly it was my same Force Dance were also I was gonna say unfortunately then not unfortunately (laughs) were I just don't want to be a a member of the big crowd you see I want to be an individual but it was Force Dance um, that I saw that sort of changed my perspective on what theatre can do and can be Um, so even though I've, there's other pieces of work that have I've connected with more and other companies that I've connected with more I yeah. must go back to the fact that when I was at college training to be an actor I did a little two-week devising module loved it and then the guy who ran it said well I'm going to see this company called Force Entertainment do you want to come with me I'll get some of the students together we went and I went okay this is what I want to do <laughs> or I want to you know I want to research and find out more about this stuff which led me yeah. down a university route as opposed to a, a sort of drama school route because yeah. all I'd known up until that point was acting in drama school. I didn't know this existed in, until that sort of first year of college. Um, sorry, I'm rambling now. But yeah, do you have those sort of moments, experiences that just made you go? Yeah, oh. I mean, generally speaking, not with theatre. So I'll try and think more about um, theatre. I think my, my first ever experience like that was... so. In my last year at high school, I was wholly unprepared to leave school and um, hadn't really thought about what I was going to do with myself. And it appeared like all my friends had just fucked off and done UCAS forms, and I hadn't. So um, I went to my local polytechnic college for a year and did um, uh, a course on acting and performance. And um, I hated it so much that it propelled me to prepare to to apply to drama school. <laughs> um, but during that time, the one thing that course gave me was a coach trip from Falkirk, which is where I'm from, tiny wee town between Glasgow and Edinburgh. Uh, a coach trip to Newcastle, never been to Newcastle, went to Northern Stage, saw their in-house production of A Clockwork Orange in 1998, and it, it blew my mind. I'd never seen contemporary performance before, I'd never seen physical theatre before, and I had never seen video being projected in a performance before, and it had all of those. It was physically so dynamic and uh, and visceral and offensive and beautifully choreographed. I was just like, what, what is this? Um, and that was it. From, from the moment that I, I saw that performance, I was like, I wanna make that kind of work and actively sought out courses Um, that were about devised and collaborative process over being an actor, which is what I had thought I wanted to do. So that's the first one. 
and then and then a performance which sits with me all the time which I return to whenever I'm teaching and at the start of every single process is Lone Twins on Everest do you know it oh yes very well absolutely beautiful with this I'm going to assume you've told your students, but in case you haven't, Lone Twin is a collaboration between Greg Whelan and Gary Winters. And I experienced On Everest at the Centre for Contemporary Art in Glasgow in the year 2000. And um, and is it all right for me to explain what it is? Is that OK? Yeah, absolutely fine. Yeah, we've had we had Lone Twin into the showroom many, many years <gasps> ago. Um, but you know what? With the project, I can't remember the bicycle one, the one where they biked around. Oh, why am oh, I going yes. blank? Oh. It was um, 900, no. I can't remember the name of it, but I do remember uh, Gary, because Gary was one of my lecturers at uni, I do remember Gary saying that they got these two beautiful Brompton fold-out bikes, <laughs> which he was like, I'm just really excited to have that when the process is finished, I get to keep the bike. <laughs> I should probably not have said that. Should I? Um, so, yeah, so on Everest, um we entered the gallery and there are Gary and Greg fully hatted and mittened with these massive rucksacks on really full looking and they were they were moving um along this demarcated white line that must have been about 30 meters long and what struck me was that it was clear that this endeavor had been had been going for hours before I got there. Like the air was thick with the smell of their sweat and they were red faced and sweating and they'd hit a real rhythm with their walking. And just observing these two men undertaking a real physical task in a gallery space, like that kind of confused me because I wasn't sure, it wasn't pre-contextualized what we were going to go and see. But they were covering the distance from base camp to the summit of Everett by walking along this length of the floor, like a real action in the context of performance. And that fucking changed me. Um, And the fact that that act did not necessitate an audience being there, like this was going to happen regardless. But what that did afford me in witnessing it live was that we were going to witness their final hour of literally walking. Like, regardless of whether or not I'm going to buy into this sort of narrative of climbing Everest, like, I'm still going to literally watch you finish an hour of, like, however many hours you've been walking for. Um, so you're experiencing something that was all at once fictional, but a true action being undertaken that was entirely real. And the sense of engagement and the willingness for you as an audience member to want these two people to succeed at walking, which seems ridiculous, um, was something that I'd never encountered before. And and like that was 20 years ago and it it, it has affected everything I've made, everything that I've made. Um, yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah. Those, in terms of theatre or live art, I mean, um, there's lots that I could say, especially sort of in relation to prototype uh, and our sort of shared influences, but there are, less about theatre uh, okay. and, and more about film <laughs> oh nice yeah I must I must admit like with with Bootworks um Lone Twin has sort of heavily oh. influenced some of the projects that we've done like when uh, James and the company uh, climbed to space in the old Forest Fringe cafe oh, yeah. um and drew space <laughs> oh, around God. him that was and a long time ago that was, was 2010 that- yeah, I was going to say, that's when you were in the, the church space. Yes. 
Was it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And just, yeah, that piece, the ripples of that Everest piece, it's lovely. Uh, but yeah. we, we can talk about film work then with, because yeah. I think influences with prototype, what what kind of, can do any come to mind that kind of, that have really heavily influenced your practice as a company? Um, well, I think what's great about having three people that have three very different, and it will be the same for you guys, I assume, three really different um, practices is that we've got really different things influencing us as individuals every day that will feed seamlessly into a prototype process, even if we're not doing it explicitly, that we would probably not be exposed to if we weren't working with those other artists or having those out of theatre, outside of theatre experiences, but still within the sort of cultural sector. Um, I am a massive fan of uh, the Greek filmmaker Yorgo Lanthimos. And so I, at the start of this process for our part three of the trilogy, um, I introduced Wes and Rachel to Dogtooth. Have you seen it? I have, yes. Wait, well, let me, let me, that is the piece where the guy keeps his family locked away from the world in a house yeah. and, uh, and everything sort of starts to crumble as, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. basically the premise is that, that this mother and father are, yeah, keeping their children ignorant of the world, um, the world outside the boundaries of their property, they just keep them locked in well into adulthood. Uh, and the main thrust of that ignorance is the withholding of the meaning of language. As you might remember, like they misname everything, like, oh, what is this? Picks up a pen. That is a spider, like, so that they would have no capacity to survive outside yeah. the boundaries of their, their house. Um, so it's a fascinating film that clearly heavily influenced at the start of making this piece around. Uh, language and um, yeah, how how we associate meaning from that and reality from that, and then probably everybody's mentioned, but Adam Curtis, um, the entire back catalogue of Adam Curtis's work has been like massive for for prototype. Um, I think his his six part is still on the iPlayer. Yeah, I it was. Yeah. Um, so his work is super succinct, um, and something that he is quoted as saying, which I'll misquote for you right now, is that um, he believes that people think in fragments now, that we lack the ability or the want to make meaning. We only want to associate. We don't want to make like whole meaning around concepts and understandings. Um, and so for us as a company, what's lost in those spaces when we're no longer fully communicating? And for me, it's been hugely fucking significant to recognize and address that widespread proliferation, uh, proliferation of like circular logic and avoidance of debate or nuanced discussion. Um, and, and of course, that's something that we've noticed during research in all of the shows over the last sort of six years or so, but it, it's getting to like then we're sort of in a hyper post-modernity, post-truth. Like there's more need for encouraging critical thinking and not judgment. And the yes. process of reasoned debate, not argument, now more than there ever has been. And I feel like lockdown has exacerbated that, the pylons people get for fucking trying desperately to understand uh, an existence that's not their own lived experience. And they just get fucking piled on. And what that does is something we pertain to in a machine, 
hands off, then I'm not going to try because I don't want to upset anyone. And I don't also want to be labeled something I don't believe I am. Yeah. But that means that's people are afraid to speak. That's not a great place to reach. So in place of cancelling or attacking or just shutting the fuck down, uh, it's imperative that people are encouraged to develop the skills to have that nuanced conversation and engagement. And I think Curtis's work does that deftly. And I don't think I don't think we rob off him. I think that it's just that we draw parallels with with his need to offer fact without opinion. And I think that's what I, I I'd like to think that's what we do because ultimately especially with this trilogy what we've been attempting to do anyway is um to communicate to people what is happening like literally um not through the lens of popular media that's often hamstrung or has affiliations but but literally what what's important to us and that conversation is important uh especially in the present sort of political climate where you know fucking brexit a pandemic pretty fucking patel um full stop (laughs) she's got her own she's got her own fucking segment like now is a a fertile time to be making theater about truth uh Uh, and it's also the most difficult time to be doing it so I've gone a bit off topic there but <laughs> no 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 I really agree with you though it's kind of you bring up a really good point in what I've noticed mainly through this lockdown as well is that people are really angry yeah and it's like really angry and it's the first time in my life I've noticed people who I would consider pretty level-headed and debaters and let's have a conversation about it sort of getting yeah. sucked in by this whoa this yeah just really angry proper vitriol vacuum and it's and I I have to say it really I mean we're going to get on to the bit where you hopefully ask me about things I've been doing in lockdown but (laughs) what it made me do was shut everything off because I just couldn't cope with the personalities of people that I know very well in the real world as genuine generous beautiful humans just becoming these complete strangers online and shutting people down and this race to the bottom of, well, I've na 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 na. I'm from na 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 this background, like this sort of constant undercutting of like who's had the worst time instead of desperately trying to find a way to make everybody's lives better. Right. I just could I couldn't deal with that on top of the uncertainty of the sector and the global threat of death uh, it was too much to bear so I just came off everything yeah <laughs> and so well let's lead that into um how have you been filling your time during lockdown to to stop from uh, well, I suppose mainly to keep creative to keep your mind active in that sense is there anything that you've been actively engaging with or trying to at the start no because every other fucker was making a mad dash to learn new stuff and get to grips with sourdough whatever the fuck that was <laughs> reading all those books they'd been saving and I was at a fucking loss mate I actually felt paralyzed by that apathy of of not recognizing the people that I've known for years and their behaviors and recognizing why that shift had happened but also not being able to reconcile it and I just thought nah bit of introspection and reflection and scaling down and taking my time and going slowly to reacquaint myself with things that fuel me so um 
we've got a little show and tell, which is unhelpful for a podcast. Um, <laughs> but I started really, really small with, if you can see this little book. Oh, yes. Will Self Scale. Yes. Now, this is part of a really, I don't know if you remember, in the mid-90s, when Penguin turned 60, they did this thing, which was Penguin 60s. So for 60p, you could get a 60-page, like, five-millimetre-wide little book. And they had hundreds of them. They were amazing. Um, and so, yeah, this one by Will Self is called Scale. And it's literally about having lost a sense of perspective, literally and figuratively. And I like that. And it wasn't hard to read. So <laughs> that, that was the first thing that I, I had for. But then I think um, I, I think I just started to head. I, I think it might have been born out of nostalgia to begin with, if I'm honest. But then I think I just really needed to return to things that I knew motivated me beyond the present political climate. I was trying to get away from talking about the massive subjects that people were trying to contend with over Twitter tennis because I couldn't wrap my head around it. And the only person I could converse with was the poor fucker that I live with, my husband, Adam York Gregory. And it, that's just not fair on, on one person. So yeah, so I um, I started listening to bands that really, really pushed me as a kid. So like the Keeney Kill, I don't know if you ever listened to them, in case your students don't know who they were, are. They're an all-girl punk rock band uh, from the early 90s who are kind of hailed as pioneering the riot girl movement, which was and still is uh, an underground movement that combines um, feminism, punk music and politics. Uh, they're amazing. Um, I returned to like Pearl Jam and Radiohead and the bands who were asking all of the pertinent political questions in the early 90s. Um, because that offered me a sense of perspective on how cyclical the nature of our socio-political situation was. Like, I have lived through this before. I will through, live through this again. And it will happen again. Yeah. Um, and in the 90s, a similar socio-political climate had emerged. Like, George W. Bush um, as president. And here in the UK, the rise of um, new rise and fall of new labor and the Iraq war and the reckoning that millions of us took to the fucking streets in our late teens to protest against this war that went ahead as if we hadn't even bothered. And that recognition of how the UK governmental structure functioned and how politics in the UK worked was really influential on me I think so yeah kind of returning to like old music um, and then this book as well so I'm um, an associate artist with Third Angel and Alex Kelly and I we're obsessed with time we do a lot of work that's durational together and and um, Alex had um, given me this maybe about 10 or 11 years ago. It's a book called The Clock of the Long Now. Have you encountered it? I haven't. Oh, Andy. So I'll add it to the wish list. <laughs> oh, great. Okay, so it's called The Clock of the Long Now, but it's a, it's a book that um, is born out of a project called The Clock of the Long Now. Um, and it's got a lot of investment from scientists and really smart people, and also Brian Eno, because why wouldn't he? <laughs> uh, so effectively, this is um, a project that's about fostering long-termism and long-term thinking and long-term and collective responsibility. So, so we've 
we think of um, here and now as here, me at my kitchen table, and now like five minutes ago until five minutes from now. And the clock of the long now is about trying to foster an understanding of time as being stretched. So here is the last 200 years and the next 200 years. Um, oh, sorry, that's now. And here is like literally earth, you know. You can say country. I mean, you can widen it as much as you want, but it's not your kitchen table. It's about broadening your sense of responsibility and collectivism. That sounds a bit hippie, but we'll move forward. So the idea was to literally build a clock, this massive fucking clock that like dings every 100 years and chimes every thousand years and, and is a literal repository for paper copies of every book in the world so that we... When, I mean, I don't want to be doomsday, but so, I mean, you know yourself, floppy disk. How many of your students yeah. know what that is? How many things have you saved on a floppy disk that you'll never see again? Uh, oh, loads. So it's about, it's about ensuring the retention of knowledge and the sharing of knowledge. But it's also about recognizing that like, yeah, great that in your toty lifespan, you did all the things you wanted to do and to help with the rest of everyone else and the generations to come. But actually, you need to consider your lineage. You know, you need to know where you've come from. I don't mean in terms of parentage. I just mean in terms of being a responsible human. You need to see the you need to see those cycles, those socio-political cycles and know how to deal with the next one to be a responsible human. So. I mean, that's quite a heavy, that's quite a heavy concept, but <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> but I'll definitely check that out. What's that? Is the, the what's that? The it's, night of the long time? It's called the clock. Oh, the clock of the long, long time. Now. Oh, long yeah. now. Okay. Yeah. I'll, um, what I'll do is I'll put a little link for any students who might be interested oh, yeah, in, the, awesome. in the bottom of the thing. And I don't know if it's still there, but kind of following on from that, there was some an amazing documentary uh, about Greta Thunberg on the iPlayer as well, where she is basically just talking about how difficult it is to be the person that everyone is hanging their fucking hopes on but actually she's just getting wheeled out she's getting wheeled out like a little totem like oh look at the box that we ticked there she is we've dealt with that now on with the actual business of making money so that's quite a fascinating one and um, I've got loads I'm not going to keep you too long but just because it's fucking great uh, I also have this uh, which is um, the Gorilla Girls bedside companion to the history of Western art. And I think this was really important to me during lockdown just because it was about recognising those small things, those small actions. Again, a return to lone twin, but it's about literal action taking that has a political slant. So it's basically just about how the Gorilla Girls develop their body of work. Um, something that's kept me amused is on a similar vein is the artist Rachel Clerk. I don't know if you're, I assume you're familiar yeah. with Rachel. Yeah. Okay, so she did a great wee project called Roots Out, a catalogue of resistance. And she put a call out and invited 100 people um, to receive a postcard from her. And each postcard that went to one, one postcard per person, the postcard you received had one out of a hundred ways to overthrow the Tory government. And then you were invited to forward a response of an alternative one. And this is just a little catalogue of everybody's answers. And it's fucking great. Uh, here's one. Boris Johnson's stag do. Everyone you imagine might be there is there. Three drown in a fountain in the centre of a European city. Two are murdered by a sex worker who is done with men like this. 
Four more suffocate whilst wrestling each other in inflatable costumes. The remaining two contract COVID-19 on the plane home and die shortly after. I mean, some of it's pretty grim. Some of it's very lighthearted and some of it's actually like quite practical. And just just because it's the one last thing, because it's really important to me as a human being is, I am a long-standing member of the Modernist Society, uh, which is based in Manchester, and it comes up to Glasgow on its jolly holidays for lots of expos and things. But I, so I receive the periodicals, and they are quite frankly an insight into you know the utopia that could, the concrete utopia that could have been. Um, yeah, so basically they're just they're just like lovely ruminations on modernist principles, not just uh, sort of brutalist architecture, but like um, yeah, just. Uh, just great little be- and beautiful objects as well. Uh, all things kind of tactile and uh, and fantastic. So yeah, that's my those are my my recommends. Your recommendations, amazing. Thank you. Um, and I suppose I sort of I've just noticed I sort of skipped over one question that I think is a little bit important. So we'll make that maybe our final question. Sure. Um, and it's a tough one. Um, but. Do you have any advice for, say, a student who's just left university, they might have just done their master's degree or maybe a BA, um, and they want to just get their work out there? And do you have any advice or can you think about how you approach this aspect and what worked for you and what maybe doesn't work and and what mindset you should have when when trying to get your work out there? can we do a sister po- podcast? <laughs> the, just, the just container press. Um, just that question. <laughs> that question. That's a huge question. Uh, so I think it's, uh, it is, it's different for everybody. That's probably important to say. And for myself, when I graduated from what was the RSAMD and is now the Royal Conservatoire in Glasgow, I wanted to be a performer, but CPP courses were not really common like that was the only one in Scotland and there were only like maybe another two in the whole of the UK and so being a a trained in inverted commas um, contemporary performance practitioner like having gone to school to be it they existed fuck yeah I mean look at the whole live art the live art um, canon of course they existed but formally trained just to do that little thing I don't think many of us existed at that point in the early 2000s and so we didn't know what we were trained to fucking do like I'm not quite an actor um I don't have the means to make my own work but I could if if I had money and space and time um so what I did was found artists and companies that I was really interested in and phoned imagine the days phoned them because internet was a thing that nobody used um (laughs) So yeah, I, I I turned up actually at um, a performance. What was the performance? I think it might have been the Ladlet Project, um, Third Angel, which was a solo piece that Alex performs for Third Angel at the Green Room in Manchester. I'd never been to Manchester before, and I just turned, I just went, got on a train and went. Uh, and I'd worked with Alex at uni. He'd come in for like a devising period, and uh, yeah. After and I hung about like a spare limb <laughs> after the show and was like, I don't know if you remember me. And he was like, Oh yeah, you're the you're the person that's really interested in durational performance. So we hung out and then he invited me down to Sheffield a few months later and then we started making work together. Like that sounds like 
I mean, it was much harder than that, I'm sure, yeah. but on like on reflection, but effectively just showing an interest, a human interest, not a cynical hire me, hire me interest. Yeah. Like I heard the show was happening and it's about this thing and I'm interested in this thing. And I'm, can we have a conversation about that? And if people are your people, then they're going to want to respond because because you you put, you don't pull the ladder up behind you. You leave the fucking door open. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like that's yeah. the responsibility of mid-career artists. Leave the fucking door open. Um, so I've got, I guess I've got a few things that I would say as sort of overall things to consider if you're graduating, but I don't know about necessarily getting your work explicitly shown, um, but I shall impart this hilarious five-part knowledge. So um, what's most important? One, um, probably recognize that your practice is never complete. I think that's really important. I encountered a student two years ago who said, oh, I haven't done the reading. I don't need to because my practice is complete. And my response was, <laughs> lucky you, because I've been going for over 20 years and mine is nowhere near finished. Yeah. Your, or your practice is never complete. Yeah. You have to be willing to evolve and shift. So It's not a computer game. <laughs> Oh yeah! Imagine you're, just le- you're leveling. I've done up. it. <laughs> I've I've finished a big boss. I'm done. I'm just gonna say exactly. Fuck's <laughs> sake! Your practice is never complete. Um, I think the second thing is, I think this is important. Be multidisciplinary in your interests, even if not in your output. So, like being a live artist or a theatre practitioner should not preclude you from seeking inspiration everywhere and in every other art form um, so recognize that everything that you engage with will influence the work that you make either explicitly or against your will so you know watch that weird video about how pencils are made or spend time in stationery shops touching the different gram weight of paper two of my favorite things to do um, <laughs> because the more you know about yourself and the more that you know about your tastes across the board even how however random they might seem the more you know about yourself as an artist and that's really important um, three um, to the best of your ability and within your means, I realize that is a caveat, learn how to do everything that you need to make your work that you want to make. Like learn learn how to be a productive, informed collaborator by knowing everything about your work. Um, Because that means that you get a sense of your opinion on things. So when you collaborate, you know how you think about something, but also remembering number one, be willing to evolve and shift. So yeah, like uh, to, like try and learn how to do every aspect of the things that will make your, your work, like learn about lighting and stuff. And I suppose that moves into four, which would be have an opinion on everything to do with your work. So if, whether you're a performer or a writer or a dramaturg or a producer, have an opinion about the lighting and the sound design and the content and the performance style. Um, just know your work because it means you'll always have a sense of when something isn't working and you'll be able to locate what it is that isn't working much quicker if you can go, right, well, the lighting, no, no, no. And, you know, the performance style we were aiming for was that. Has that been achieved? Well, no, that seems to be fine. Like, it will help you rigorously work through all of the elements and locate the thing that is fucking everything up. Um, and then the final thing, 
I bet loads of artists have said this to you. The final thing is <clears throat> networking isn't a new thing for you to encounter. It is a fucking awful word that simply means connect with people that you find yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah. Those other people stood sifting 100 gram matte paper in the stationery stores. Those are your people. Go find your people. Like those are the people I need to get to know because we've innately got something in common right extend yeah. your reach in every direction and it doesn't matter if they're not I think also the impulse is to be like find the theater people that will get my work somewhere not always because I have to admit that like 70% of my work outside of prototype has not come from theater but has ended up being theater work so oh, okay. maybe yeah. that is somebody on the other side of the world seeing a call out that I happen to have missed that's happening in the UK and saying, hey, doesn't Gillian Jane Lees do something to do with durational performance practice and tagging me in and then me going, oh, right, well, that visual artist from Canada, what are you saying? Oh, this thing that's happening through Arts Admin. Like, you know, these connections seem disparate and unhelpful, but actually sometimes, I mean, I'm working a lot with scientists at the moment uh, with Alex and actually through a project that I've just finished with Adam, Scientists, who knew that connections with scientists, biochemists, would have any impact on a durational performance practice, but it does in a roundabout way. So, you know, keep open to the networks, uh, to the possible networks, and literally just ex just um, build a web of interest in people around yourself, and you won't be bored, and you'll always be able to elicit a plethora of unique opinions, not just those pertaining to the theatre sector like yeah. get out of the theatre vacuum it's good to keep an eye on it make lots of friends that's nice but also don't forget there are many other things you can be interested in that will inform your practice and really give you a beautiful theatre practice as a result so yeah god I've whittled on I'm sorry <laughs> no that is so I feel like those five points we sh you should put up in a little frame and a little poster <laughs> I think that's a really lovely clear way of how to approach yourself as an artist and your work and your engagement with the the culture of art and not just art but the shit that you dig the stuff that you, you really enjoy I think that's yeah. so easy to forget when you're in when you're in that um, when you're in your institution and you're in your studios fuck me in the showroom like a beautiful theater like it's really hard to remember that you know other things can feed into that maybe it's the taste of something or the texture of your pal's jumper or whatever it is these things have an impact so that when you're coming to think about that project where you do a bunch of running and you really want to make sure that the the movement of your body carries oh yeah that jumper was a really particular fabric that would throw really well around your body when you're moving like seriously that's how easy it can be so yeah keep open keep open to the world <laughs> Amazing. As I say, it's been an absolute delight talking to you, Gillian. It's your, I just, anyone who's passionate about what they do is just an absolute joy. I, I remember saying to a friend of mine once, you know, actually, I think I, I hold passion about something above all things. Like if someone could talk to me about ants that I have no interest in, but if they really give a shit and they are passionate about it, I'll listen to them talk for an hour because I just feed off of that. And I've got that yeah. same feeling talking to you just, just now for this hour. So thank you so much. It's been great. Awesome. It's been so nice to speak to you, Andy. Thanks for having Lovely. me. Thanks. <laughs>
And that was Gillian. I want to say thanks very much to Gillian for taking the time out of her day to chat with me and impart her wisdom upon our audiences and our students. And as I mentioned at the start of this episode, it really is lovely just spending an hour with someone who is so passionate about what they do. I will leave links in the description box to this episode uh, to Prototype Theatre's website and her website with her collaborator, Adam York Gregory. And until next time, everyone, stay safe and thank you very much for listening.